Thank you, Jillian and Cooks. <laughs> we kind of need these weekly <coughs> glimpses of glory. Um, I think God knew we couldn't go more than a week in the mire of this world before needing some kind of reminder of what's ultimately important. I'm part of a dysfunctional family and I <laughs> perpetuate a dysfunctional family. It's just, you know, you slip back in the same unhealthy patterns when you go to your birthplace, I think, uh, as my kids likely do when they come home. It's kind of the story of Genesis. It's this sort mm -hmm. of uh, string of dysfunctional families that we get uh, to be part of and to watch. Who, uh, who's part of a dysfunctional family, if you just want to raise <laughs> Okay, yeah. Some of you are, some maybe not. But then you see these glimpses of God's glory and goodness and purposes, and it just reminds you there's something more. And so from Adam and Eve up through the uh, you know, final story of Joseph, Genesis is one dysfunctional family after another with glimpses of God's goodness and intent and glory. And... That's part of what feels important for us to get this scope and to do this in sort of a broad perspective is just to see the arc of dysfunction and God's grace and goodness in the midst of dysfunction to encourage us and remind us we're part of a bigger story. So I'm going to pray for Mark as he brings us to the family of Abraham, really a, a centering story for the rest of all of scripture in many ways. So wow. this family is the beginning of the rest of the story. And so God, we open our ears and hearts as dysfunctional people within dysfunctional families to hear something of your goodness and your promise in the midst of the world and the empires that we're part of. Would you speak through Mark? Mm. Would you give us listening ears in Jesus' name? Amen. Mm. Ah, thank you, Scott. Well, yes, Genesis does have a lot of dysfunction. And uh, today's passage, I think, really underscores that. There's a lot of things that seem to kind of conflict and, and sort of bump into one another as we uh, look at the story of uh, the sacrifice of, of Isaac. Um, so uh, just continuing with our series... We might invite the kiddos to come up as an introduction to today's if they feel so inclined to do so. <laughs> so I had a question that I was wanting to ask you. Uh, have you ever been told to do something that you didn't quite understand, that didn't seem to be quite right? I don't know if I ever You don't know if you ever did? Maybe something your parents told you? Or, what? What's that? I don't know if I ever did. You don't know? Well, it sounds like you've lived a very coherent life. <laughs> up, up. Up, up to this point. 
So maybe something, told something that maybe confused you a little bit. You didn't know maybe what would happen if you did what you were told. Any situation like that? Well, maybe you'll encounter that. Maybe you'll encounter that as you get a little bit older. Maybe I did. Yeah, I mean, this is a family that may be lacking that dysfunction. I I don't know. So, well, here's a story that you might like. Um, There was once an old couple, Abraham and Sarah. And this was the couple that were sort of the great, 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 great grandparents of Jesus. So they were ultimately going to give rise to Jesus, our Savior. But there was a little hitch here. They were too old to have kids. Sarah was too old to have babies. And... So that seems to kind of put a kind of put a wrench in things, doesn't it? It seems to kind of to stop the story. But what happened was that God promised them a child. And that child's name would be Isaac. And by a miracle, God caused Sarah to have this child, Isaac. And so Isaac grew And Abraham and Sarah grew to love Isaac very, very much. But then one day, something odd happened. Something startling happened. Uh, God told Abraham that he was going to have to say goodbye to Isaac. How do you think that made Abraham feel? I think so. Very, very sad and perhaps very confused because God had already promised Abraham this son. And so that would have been very hard on Abraham. And so what happened is they were going to go to the top of a mountain and say their goodbyes there. And so that's what they did. Abraham and Isaac set out. They went to the top of the mountain And they were getting ready to say goodbye to one another. And then what happened? Well, God said at that point that it's okay. You don't have to say goodbye. And God returned Isaac to Abraham. And how do you think that Abraham felt? He felt very good. And maybe as a result of that, Abraham and Isaac grew to love each other even more. And maybe they even learned how to love God even more. So that's something that we can, we can think about, you know. God sometimes has us do things that we don't initially understand, but it can still have a good ending. So you might want to think about that. In the, in, in the days ahead, you know. Sometimes we, you know, we, we could get confused, but God is faithful in leading us through that. And sometimes things become a little bit more clear when we obey God. So that's our introduction to, the, to our, 
our story today. And, um, you know, the, the, it might be good. We're skipping ahead a little bit today. And so just by way of, of brief capitulation, I mean, God, uh, uh, Scott has indicated this is sort of a critical story here. Um, and much of Genesis, the rest of Genesis really flows from this story. But the first 11 chapters of Genesis essentially sort of lays out the human condition. We are bearers of God's image, but we've acted on the presumption that we know what's best for us. And we've assumed that role that God should have in our lives. And as a result, there has been a distortion of the divine image within us. Uh, We can no longer relate to God and each other without compromising the intimacy that we're supposed to have. And so um, as a result of that, um, we can't present to one another unblemished faces that truly reflect God's image in the way that it is. And the rest of the narrative of Genesis really sort of lays out the consequences of that. Uh, Linda has emphasized the importance of archetypes in this regard. So uh, there's the loss of paradise and the ensuing uh, compromise of intimacy that that results from that. Yeah, sure. Yeah, you just yeah you can transition back to the table there. We have this this archetypal brotherly relationship between Cain and Abel, and this almost this this competition that that ensues between them as they try to seek uh, right standing before God. Um, we have uh, this relationship um, th- th- again, this relationship of competition that's introduced into the human condition. Um, we have Noah's Ark and uh, the, 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 the refuge from judgment that that represents, but also the promise of redemption. And then we have uh, the Tower of Babel. And as Scott spoke of uh, last week, the, the dangers of power uh, that results from that the consolidation of power, and the evils that that attach to that. And so uh, the nations are dispersed, and at the end of the 11th chapter, uh, we're left with a somewhat um, sobering, dystopic, uh, not very encouraging sort of scenario. And then, beginning with Genesis 12, God's redemptive intentions begin to assume a definite focus. And we have then the calling out of Abram and Sarai. And Abram and Sarai will father and mother a people group that will ultimately give rise to a redeemer. Uh, Someone who perfectly exemplifies the image of God and who, in relationship with him, we can have that, that restored image. And the man who initially is known as Abram is given a new identity. 
He goes from Abram to Abraham, from Abram, exalted father, to Abraham, father of many nations. Same thing with Sarai. Sarai goes from Sarai to Sarah, from respected mother to mother of many nations. And so in the process of this, uh, God promises Abram and Sarah a son. Now, of course, at this time, they're much too old, as we've related, to have children. So by a miracle, God uh, is able to, um, he makes Sarah pregnant, and they have a son, Isaac. And Abraham and Sarah, of course, both deeply attach themselves to Isaac. And in a startling sequence of events, God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And at this point, the narrative just seems to come to a, a brick wall. Uh, Abraham, on the part of Abraham, and on the part of us as, as readers. And Abraham is commanded to take Isaac and to sacrifice him. Now, this whole scenario brings up a flurry of questions uh, as, we, as we think about it. One question is, what gives Abraham the conviction that this is what God wants him to do? It's in the Bible, yeah. Yeah, culturally. But given, given God's prior promise to Abraham, um, it, Abraham must have initially been incredibly taken back and, and, and perplexed by this. It must have been very painful for him internally. And so one question I had in just kind of looking at this passage is what, what brought Abraham to the conviction that he should actually, that this is what he actually heard and that he should act upon it? I mean, I, I, yeah, Linda. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that 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 could be right. Um I I think he's certain. Yeah, well, um yeah, Linda said that um Abraham had the trust that he was given this this prior promise. And so it was on that that he acted, not really knowing necessarily what the consequences of this would be or what it would actually look like, how this would actually conclude, right? I don't think that Abraham argued himself into uh, the decision to go through with this. 
I think that perhaps Abraham already had a deep sense of attachment to the Lord. And it was maybe out of that attachment that he was able to, to act. Um, Yeah. 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 I mean, I mean, we typically take that as Abraham receiving a clear word from God that this is what he was supposed to do. I mean, that's certainly the way that it's characterized in in Scripture. Um, you know, one question I have is, was that the way that it actually happened? Was that the way that in the moment he actually received that? Um, one thing that I would like to emphasize is the extent to which God is identifying with, with Abraham here. I, I, I would like to suggest that there is a kind of shared pain that's going on here. When, when the Lord says take your son and then throws in the qualifier, your only son, the son whom you love, then there is something of a prophetic ring to those words, I think, as we all know, right? I mean, God is expressing his ultimate intentions toward his own son, right? God intends for Abe nothing more than what God ultimately intends for himself through his relationship with his own son. So the question that comes to my mind is, that, was it just as difficult for God to deliver the command to Abraham as it was for Abraham to receive it? What do you think about that? to think that there was some divine pain on God's part in issuing that command. I think scripture, scripture witnesses to us that God relates to us with a full range of passion. And since God is essentially relational in the depths of his very being, then the intensity of the relationship that he has with us is something analogous to the intensity of the relationship that God experiences within his own relational life, in a Trinitarian relationship. So I think the effect of the circumstance in which Abraham finds himself is to be drawn into the life of God more deeply. And this is something that presumably, perhaps, Abraham didn't fully understand at the time, but maybe something that he came to realize more deeply in retrospect. So I think that there, there's a mutuality of experience that's taking place here between God and Abraham. A Abraham was being led more deeply into the life of God and I think it was from that place that Abraham began to see God 
not so much as an external agent that would extract him from the pain of life, but as an internal presence that he could nurture, that he could have this sense of immediacy with. And I think it's from that place that Abraham was able to marshal the strength to grip the dagger and lift it above Isaac. So Abraham is is holding within himself what some have called the coincidence of opposites. He was able to hold that that tension within himself. On the one hand, the the, the promise of Isaac. On the other, uh, the command to sacrifice him. And Abraham became a kind of knight of faith, as a famous writer, Soren Kierkegaard, said, enabling him to to hold that tension within himself. And I think that that's emblematic of the life of faith. I think uh, there is inevitably going to be that kind of pain and tension and ambiguity and ambivalence that is involved in walking with God. Clarity is not something that he necessarily gives us initially. So this, this, this pain, this, 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 this coincidence of opposites, if you will, uh, that is the path to wholeness, ultimately. Um, it's not by removing the pain that our lack of understanding will inevitably bring us. Our lack of understanding will inevitably bring us pain. That's just our condition as as finite people who have a limited understanding, who don't see the whole. Um, But God doesn't necessarily extract us from that. He walks us through it. And I think that this is one reason why Abraham was called ultimately the friend of God. So I so again I I think there's a mutuality that's going on in this passage that is unstated. Remember that Bobette a few weeks ago said that Genesis is just as important for what it doesn't say as for what it does. And I think that there is an implied mutuality that's taking place here in this account. God and Abe were mutually willing to take that walk together. And in so doing, God was inviting Abraham into a journey through God's own character. And in so doing, in in Abraham's willingness to take that journey, he was able to find a new identity. He was God's friend. So, The Lord knew that Abraham deeply loved Isaac. And there was always going to be a danger of Abraham looking to Isaac as the center of his faith, looking to Isaac as that to which uh, he he most valued. And I think that we are all prone to elevate the gift, the good gift, above the giver. Um, And I think part of what God was wanting to do was to bring Abraham into 
a state in which he was willing to release Isaac. Um, it is a willingness to release the gift that we do justice to both the gift and the giver. If we, if we cling to something too tightly, it, it, we're essentially imposing ourselves upon it. What, whatever that thing is, whether, whether it's a family heirloom, whether it's a trinket we like, whether it's our pet, or whether it's, it's the one we love. Um, it's only in releasing that that we come to appreciate something for what it is. And so I think that we have a pattern here that God wants to draw Abraham into. It's a process of, of approach and release. A process of approach and release. It's, it's a kind of divine breathing, if you will. As, as Abraham is willing to give up Isaac, he also recovers him. And that's what I think God wants Abraham to do. I think Abraham wants God to learn, wants Abraham, uh, God wants Abraham to learn how to breathe. Um, so when, when a baby is born, the doctor will typically deliver a smack to the baby's rump uh, to initiate breathing. And I think in Abraham's case, uh, God was sort of delivering an existential smack to the spiritual bottom of Abraham. And having bottomed out, as it were, Abraham uh, was learning to breathe. And Abraham and God were, were breathing together uh, at that point. So... Um, the, the passage is challenging. It, it, it does bring up this whole host of, of questions and particularly what Abraham uh, was experiencing at the time. I, it's true that in Hebrews, we do read that uh, Abraham had the faith that God could raise Isaac from the dead. Um, but I, I, I'm inclined to resist the temptation to diminish the excruciation of the moment that Abraham was in. Uh, after all, the Hebrew writer was writing, what, maybe almost 2,000 years from the event. He had some perspective at that point. And maybe Abraham later in life developed the kind of faith where he would have believed that God could have raised Isaac from the dead. I think that it's an open question whether uh, Abraham was in that position when he received the divine call. I mean, I, I don't think it was a situation in which, um, you know, Abraham said to himself, eh, you know, no problem, uh, God can raise my son Isaac, Isaac, um, let's, uh, let's saddle up the donkey, uh, get your bags packed, and let's hit the road to Mount Moriah. Uh, I, I don't think that it was that, that easy for him at the time. Um, so if, if God is to make a difference in our lives, 
uh, we have to allow for the possibility that God might lead us into that which runs counter to our reason, into that which runs counter to our moral sense. Uh, what may seem to us at the time to be against our best interest. If we assume that God could never say or do anything that violates our conscience or our moral intuitions about things, if God always has to share our sensibilities about things, then is not God displaced from the center of our lives at that point? Does this get at something of the essence of the fall when we look back at, at Adam and Eve? Was the presumption on their part that God has to acknowledge our intuitions about what is right? And so if we're not willing to release that, then in essence we we become our own gods. And God loses his, his proper place at, at the center of our, our lives. The Apostle Paul talks about the three great virtues of uh, Christian maturity, of Christian character. What are, what, what are those? Faith, hope, and and love, and of course, I think I think this passage is primarily about about faith. Um, but Abraham demonstrated, I think, in this in this situation, all three of these of these attributes. Faith, if we, if we think about faith, it's really the only reasonable response that we have to a world that's larger than ourselves. It's the only reasonable response to a God that is larger than ourselves. So many times we, we hear this, uh, this opposition that's brought up between faith and reason. What is the relationship between faith and reason? Does, does reason conflict with faith? Well, no, it, it doesn't at all. Faith, faith is the only rational response to a world that God has created. Hope... Um, Abraham was also operating with hope. Hope is, is more than just simply the wish that something good is going to happen. I think hope is, involves the confidence that my best interest will ultimately be realized. And I think that at that point, Abraham was operating with that as well. And then love. Love is saying yes to God, what, whatever that looks like. And I think certainly in this passage... Abraham says yes to God. And I think that that's the place where all of us should be willing to be, is ultimately saying, saying yes, um, despite how that might look and despite the fact that that might run entirely against our understanding of the situation at the time. And I think that that's, that's the essence of what, of what faith is. It's, it's, it's being able to take that risk 
that God ultimately has our best in mind. Um, But inevitably, that is going to involve pain. It's going to involve confusion. uh, And it's going to involve that which we're going to have. We're going to have to be able to press. We have to be willing to press through that. And I think too many times in the culture of our church, discipleship is presented as a kind of mechanism for success. Uh, If I am operating in the center of God's will, then I'm granted a certain immunity from conflict, from ambiguity, from confusion. And the wholeness that God wants to bring into our lives doesn't consist in the extraction of ourselves out of those circumstances, but it consists in in our being able to press through it, to being able to, to, to hold in tension what sometimes seems to us to be opposites. So let's let me let me pray for you a bit here. Lord, we we thank you for your faithfulness in our lives. And sometimes it might not seem to us that we're experiencing that faithfulness in the moment. But Lord, we just pray that you would grant us the strength and the willingness to say yes to you. And that we would be willing to release even those good gifts that obscure a clear vision of you and each other. Lord, we thank you for your abiding love. And we thank you for the fact that you've promised us that you will be beside us uh, in whatever circumstance that we find ourselves, no matter how confusing, no matter how counterintuitive that might be. We thank you again, Lord, for your faithfulness and for your blessing. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Very, very thoughtful stuff. And my mind is going to the ways, Mark, in which relationship tends to be a more, more of a displacing force than even material possessions. Even in a materialistic society, I find myself attaching a relationship in a way that may displace God's authority or word in my life. And you think of Abraham's attachment to Isaac over Ishmael. And then you think of Isaac's attachment to Esau over Jacob. And you think of Jacob's attachment to Joseph. You know, this this way in which relationships that are good and ought to be close become competitors for God's word. And that's a really powerful invitation for us to kind of think through our level of commitment, obedience, trust, in God, even when relationships feel like, or even longed-for relationships that don't even exist now, become centered in our spiritual lives. So thank you for that.